Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. Thanks for listening to the new year of Babel. If you'd like to help us shape the program and have the chance to win a free Babel mug, please take a brief survey about your listening experience. It'll only take a couple of minutes. There's a link in the show notes, or you can point your browser to bit.ly slash CSISBabble. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash C-S-I-S-B-A-B-E-L. Thanks for your continued support of the podcast. We're looking forward to a great year. This week on Babel, John speaks with Bassem Youssef about political satire in Egypt and his transition to the United States. Then, John, Natasha, and I talk about satire's role as an acceptable form of opposition and its future in the post-Arab Spring Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Bassem Youssef remains one of the most recognized figures in the Middle East. His television show, Al Bernamig, captured the imagination of millions in the Arab Spring and at its height, enjoyed 30 million weekly viewers as it spoofed political life in Egypt. He ended the show in 2014 and left Egypt. He's the focus of the documentary Tickling Giants and the author of Revolution for Dummies. He now lives in Los Angeles. Bassem, welcome to Babel. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You became a viral video sensation in the midst of the Arab Spring. What started as a series of YouTube videos quickly became a television show and for a time was the most popular show in the Arab world. When you were thinking about creating this, what were you drawing on and what did you think you were doing that was really new? Well, I was always mesmerized by Jon Stewart. I loved The Daily Show. And I had this fantasy that maybe we'll have a show like that in Egypt one day. Of course, the political climate before the revolution did not permit that. When the revolution happened, there was kind of a fluidity, hope, a space for the unexpected, the unpredictable. I did the show on YouTube and I didn't even think it would go anywhere. At that time, I was about to travel to the United States because I got accepted in a fellowship in Cleveland. So I thought like, maybe I'll put it on YouTube and maybe after a year or two, when I come back, a producer will see it and maybe there will be hope there. I didn't expect that it will go explode in a matter of weeks and then I would be offered the show. I could have never predicted how big or how far the show would have gone. Even when I was on the show, I was kind of expecting it to fail any time, just like it was too much success and it was a little bit overwhelming. You had lived in the United States before. Just a couple of years. I was there for a short fellowship for a couple of years, 2007, 2008. But that's the only time where I actually lived outside my country. And is that where you got exposed to John Stewart? No, I knew John Stewart from Egypt. At that time, The Daily Show was being placed on YouTube. So from 2005, 2006. But I remember the first time I actually saw The Daily Show was not on YouTube. I was in the gym in Cairo and CNN was on. And at that time, there was a global edition. CNN would get like a collection of his best clips during the week. And this is how I knew it. And it's like, who is this guy? So that kind of got me intrigued. Now, of course, Egypt has a terrific comic tradition. People like Adel Imam, it goes back for a long time. Egypt also has this tremendous critical tradition. Poets like Ahmed Fouad Negum. Were you thinking about those things and sort of blending it with John Stewart? Or was this really sort of in your head translating John Stewart into an Arab context? 
Well, first of all, the comedy in Egypt for a very long time was kind of social comedy. The political comedy was never strong. It was never allowed by governments. Comedy was used as more of an escapism or a, a kind of event, as long as you're away from things that matter. I didn't think of Ahmed Fouad Nijmadi. I just thought of how can we have our own Egyptian version of the daily show and to make it our own. I know that a lot of people want to burden this experience with a lot of stuff that wasn't there. We really wanted to do a good quality show. Many people just wanted to project their own ideas about what the show was or what kind of messages or direction. We just wanted to do a really good comedy show. Now, you had a whole team. I mean, people like Tariq Al-Kazaz were working with you. What was the composition of the team? And what did you guys disagree about as you were thinking about what you were going to make? Well, the composition of the team was basically amateurs like me, which is the best thing. I mean, there were like a bunch of amateurs who never worked in television before, except maybe one or two. And most of our disagreement is how to do good comedy without being preachy. It's like that kind of level. Do we just do silly comedy or just do straight off preachy? So we had different ages, different ideas, different brains. And maybe that's what made the show great is that it was a pool for different innovations from different people. And that's how we got the show running. How many folks were in the writer's room? Four. Four, which is relatively small for a show like that. Yeah, we relied heavily on manpower in getting the material. So we had a lot of producers, like a lot of researchers. That was the main bulk, about 30 people. And each one of them was destined to have a show to follow and transcribe it. That was the biggest kind of manual work. And then it will go to the writing team, which is me and another three or four. When you think back to that experience, was there a sketch or a a moment that you recall as being just the most fun as you think back? Did, Did something sort of capture the craziness of the success of that time? I would say that it was the episode that I did right after the military took over. Coming back from that hiatus and coming back from what happened, that was the most difficult episode ever. And I would say that it's the most that I'm proud of because I don't know how can we even do comedy within this time, but I think we pulled it off. Of course, a lot of people hated it because people just wanted me to take sides and be kind of like straightforward and people a lot didn't people get the satire, but you know, that's the price that you pay. Did you think that you had a role in turning the public against President Morsi. I know that this is what a lot of people say, but people people deal with the show as if we are the only players. I mean, the Islamists had five channels and they had shows 24-7 going on about everybody wishing death to anybody who's against them, including me. And the fact that they lost to a show that aired once a week for an hour, it says more about them than more about the show. It's not my problem that they failed with their hatred and trying to turn the public to their side. It's not my fault, you know. And the same thing happened to the other side. You know, even the the pro-military shows hated me afterwards because I'm an equal opportunity offender. I satirize whoever is in power. I did that with the Islamists. I did that with the military. It's not my fault that one of them is stronger than the other. It's not my fault that one of them was more popular than the other. I did my job in both events. In political wars, in political conflicts, people use whatever is there on the ground. People can use people's resentment, people's emotions, 
what am I supposed to do? It's like, oh my God, I should ignore totally the hilarity that happened today in the political scene in order that it's not going to be used. At the end of the day, politics is a game and people use whatever tools they want to do the game. That is not my problem, right? I'm a political satirist. And what I did in the show was following current events and I could not ignore the stuff. And the same thing that I made fun of the Islamists, I made fun of the military when they claimed that they have come up with a, a cure for AIDS. So why didn't they use that, right? You fled Egypt in November 2014. Mm -hmm. When was the first time you thought you might need to flee Egypt? You had been brought up under the Morsi government. You were brought up in charges, taken to court. Did you think at that time that maybe you wouldn't be able to keep doing the show? Or was this when... The first time I thought of fleeing Egypt was on that day that I fled Egypt. I didn't think of fleeing Egypt before. It was that day because there was a verdict and the military is very popular and they can do whatever they want and the people will not object. Under the Islamists, we have to be very honest, the Islamists was not very popular. So I felt relatively safe, although there was a lot of like death threats and stuff. But, you know, realistically, the military owned that country. The military is part of the country and it is 10 times more popular than any other Islamic regime, for better or for worse. I'm just like being very honest and being very straightforward. The military can do whatever they want and people will hail them because they've been ruling the country for 70 years. The Islamists came in and suddenly flashes of, you know, ISIS and Iran and Hamas came in because they had a very extremist speech and people got scared. Even the tickling giants, there was a scene when there was like a conflict and I said, people are willing to live under the near of military dictatorship for a whole life and not under the Islamist dictatorship for a day. It's just like a matter of fact. Was there a moment when you came to that conclusion? No, I mean, right after the military took over, it was quite open. People were cheering it. I mean, as a matter of fact, at the beginning, I was happy that the Islamists were removed. But then I kind of like when I saw what was happening, because there was like a direct threat to me under the Islamists and under the military, I, I saw like how even my parents who were watching my show, they were like pro-military. So it's a very complex thing. And it's just like a matter of fact. It's not about right or wrong. That is the fact. You're now working on breaking into the entertainment business in the U.S. and your big Arab project seems to be Plant B, which is about introducing a vegan diet to an Arab audience. As somebody who's been a vegetarian in the Arab world myself, I know how hard that can be to explain to people. Does your moving toward talking to people about diet and veganism, is that a turn toward personal self-improvement and away from ideas about systemic change or is something else going on as you think about this? No, it's only part of it. So you, you just said that I am trying to go into the entertainment business in the United States, which is true. So I always say that comedy is a reflection of your truth. When I was in Egypt, I was concerned about what's happening with Egypt. So my show, my content reflected that in El Bernabe. In the United States, I'm doing stand-up comedy and my stand-up comedy is very uh, political. And it's also, it's reflecting about my truth as an immigrant coming into America under Trump and talking about racism, Islamophobia, xenophobia. So I'm still doing the same thing. It's still systemic change. It's just like the content is now about what I have to go through here. And the vehicle is different other than a TV show. I'm doing stand-up comedy because I'm not that big in America yet to have my own TV show. So I'm still working in comedy and I tour around the United States. That's kind of like how my comedy has shifted, still in the same direction, but now different contests. You were able to forge an amazing connection with Arab youth as a media personality. 
Are you fundamentally optimistic about where the region is headed with opportunities for young people and freedom of expression and social media and all those kinds of things? Or has your exile from Egypt and the collapse of the region's democratic experiments of a decade ago pushed you to think that everybody just needs to, to take care of their own happiness wherever they are? It's not one or the other. I think you should take care of your personal happiness and safety no matter what. So that's one thing. The other thing, I don't know what will happen in the Arab world, but I think most of these regimes have been born in the 1950s and 60s. And I think right now with the internet and open skies, I think that the newer generation will have kind of a different approach to issues in a different way than their own parents. I think there's going to be a, like a generational change. I think it's just going to take like much slower. I think it's kind of going to be like a very slowly and surely kind of change. Because at the end of the day, it's the people that they need to change. You have kids in the United States. How much do they pay attention to the Arab world? How much do you want them to pay attention to the Arab world? Well, one of them is nine and the other one is four and a half. So I don't know if they have the bandwidth <laughs> to care about that. Right now, I just worry about Adam getting off diapers and Anadia getting through her elementary school. So they still go in the summers to visit family. They go to their, I don't go, they go and to visit their family. And it's important to know that they are the product of two different cultures, which is great. I want them to be as American and as Egyptian as they should. They are the product of two cultures and they need to embrace both of them. Bassem Youssef, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much. Next up, John, Natasha, and I talk about political satire as an acceptable form of opposition to government and its future in the post-Arab Spring Middle East. I was struck when Bassem said that despite being brought up on charges under the Morsi government, he didn't actually think of leaving Egypt until much more popular military came to power. My instinct would have been that unpopular governments feel a greater urgency to crack down on dissent that they find threatening, which would have left Bassem more vulnerable under Morsi. Have you seen other examples like this play out in the Middle East? When I had the conversation, I was very surprised as well. And what struck me is I tied it to the comments he was making about these guys are just much more organized and being organized makes them more threatening. That I think that, that part of his making fun of the Morsi government was also a sense that they were a little bit incompetent. And he was intimidated by his perception of the deep competence of the Sisi-led government cracking down on people it saw as its critics. Although I would have to say the CC government was also relatively new and therefore vulnerable to criticism, or at least saw him as a threat, which I think is quite interesting. I have to say that this interview took me down quite a bitter memory lane thinking about some of the great comedians and satirists in the region and what's become of them since the Arab Spring or even prior to the Arab Spring. And Syria always comes to mind because it was much like Egypt, such a bed of satire and comedy and really quite scathing political comedy. And maybe some of the audience will, will know someone named Dure Laham, who's probably one of the most famous comedians in the region. Famous in particular for satirizing authoritarian regimes, especially in Syria. And just to give you a sense of how hard he went after them, in his famous play, Kasakiyawatan, he plays Gawar, a guy who faces, you know, all these various struggles due to corruption, amongst other things. 
And in the play, he's tortured in prison using one of the regime's favorite methods, electricity. And the torturer asks him, why are you laughing instead of screaming? And he says something like, it's wonderful that electricity has reached my behind before it even reached my village. And, you know, I mean, that's some pitch black humor. And it's really scathing because it's attacking the regime not only for its inability to provide the most basic of services, but also its oppression. But needless to say, with the advent of the Arab Spring, I was pretty surprised when Dreid Laham came out, not only in support of Bashar al-Assad, but complete with love songs to him. So what you have today is this kind of dichotomy between people like Bassem Youssef and, and many other comedians in the Arab world that are forced into exile, or you have these people that, you know, had this scathing criticism, but it was always somewhat allowed. But there's a way in which Bassem Youssef was attacking individuals in a way that was really new in terms of comedy. I mean, you can criticize the system. You can criticize the inability to get services. It's all sort of depersonalized and nobody feels really threatened. And it's a way to release pressure. What Bassem Youssef was doing was attacking the individual of the president and demeaning the individual of the president. And there's a sense that people in the security services in Egypt feel that you have to show respect to the president. And if you allow people to show disrespect to the president, you endanger the president. And therefore, that's where the line is. You can joke about the lack of electricity, the lack of water. There's an old Egyptian joke about the person who has to choose between hells. And he chooses the socialist hell because he'll be boiled in a vat of hot oil. But it turns out not to be hell at all because they went to the communal store for the subsidized oil and it was out. So there never was any oil to start with. You can have those kinds of jokes about the system. But what Bassem Yusuf was doing is attacking individuals. And I think that after the Arab Spring, there was a sense from the security services of reinstating the impunity of individuals. In Egypt, you could always criticize the prime minister. You couldn't criticize the president or his family. Then you could criticize the president's family. You couldn't criticize the president. Then you could criticize the president and they brought down the president. The Muslim Brotherhood guys, having criticized President Mubarak for many, many years, weren't as sensitive to criticism of President Morsi. But when the guys from the security services came in under President Sisi returned, they said, okay, we never should have allowed that to start with. And I think that's what probably was going on. I think that's a super interesting differentiation between different modes of comedy or even intellectual writing or art more generally, that there is a generally allowed mode of criticism, which I would say is probably diminishing now in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, but certainly prior to the Arab Spring, this was kind of allowed dissent. But you're absolutely right in terms of actual direct criticism in the vein of Bassem Yusuf was something quite new. As Natasha says, though, in the post-Arab Spring world, there seems to be less room not only for comedy that targets the individual, but comedy that may previously have been allowed. Is there an implication that we should be thinking about for that within Egypt or more broadly? I think that there's generally a disillusionment with former methods of protest, whether that was through art or comedy 
or even protests in the case of Jordan, where there has been widespread protests, again, somewhat allowed. And I think that that is an understanding that some of the older generation has had even prior to the Arab Spring. And I think the newer generation of Bassem Youssef and others are starting to realize it today. The same comedian I was talking about, Dred Laham, actually did an interview prior to the Arab Spring, where he was a much older man in his 70s and had become completely disillusioned that his satire could actually change anything. He had actually met with an Arab official who said, talk all you want, we will still do all we want. And it basically made him have the decision that his comedy would be for entertainment solely. And so I do wonder if there isn't that avenue for peaceful or constructive dissent, what newer outlets of frustration will be. I think there's something else going on too. And that is, there was a sort of excitement about dissent that we saw peaking in the Arab Spring. A lot of it wasn't really constructive. A lot of people look around and they say, well, look at what the Arab Spring's given us. I certainly know Libyans who are bitter about what it produced, Syrians who are bitter about what it produced, Yemenis who are bitter about what it produced, Egyptians who say, how did this actually advance things? And what I also see is governments be much more sophisticated in the way they message their people. One of the reasons Bassem Yusuf and, and shows like it were popular, I think, was because government media was so bad. I mean, the media that just covered what the president did every day was horrible and nobody wanted to watch it. First, people went to satellite television. There was this desire for something new. I think governments are much better at messaging their populations. Governments are good at social media. Governments pay influencers on social media. In Saudi Arabia, we see the government paying a lot of attention to how do we give things to young people and get them on our side that's not about political opposition, but cultural expression and arts and entertainment and things like that. And so I think the terms have changed and governments have managed to find ways to seize attention in a way they didn't have before. And young people are paying attention to their governments more and less to political criticism that I think a lot of young Arabs have decided is futile anyway. So pulling back from where we're at now, back to when Alman Ahmed was on TV, Bassem Yusuf might claim that he's just poking fun and has no political agenda or aims to change anything, but popular satire like what he created is clearly seen as a genuine threat by governments. What did his show do that created such angst, and why did it have such huge influence? He burst taboos right and left. People couldn't imagine that he would do it. And I think that in some ways, this is the story that came across in the interview we had. He saw John Stewart when he was in the gym in Cairo and said, wow, it would be wild to do that in Egypt with Egyptian themes, in Arabic, all those things. Not because he wanted to make Egypt like the United States, not because he wanted to get rid of the Mubarak government, but because he thought that something that burst those taboos would be a remarkable experiment. He resisted the idea that he was guided by a political mission, that he was trying to build democracy. I think there is a sense at which John Stewart had a theme of enforcing accountability. 
that was really appealing to a lot of Egyptians. But accountability and democracy are different. And I think he wanted accountability. And I think if we look at the arc of Egypt, is Egyptians don't feel they have a government with a lot more accountability, but they have a government that is performing better than the Muslim Brotherhood government performed when it was in power. And for a lot of Egyptians, it's not great, but it's probably acceptable. And when I've spoken to Egyptians, they feel that on balance, they're not worse off than they were when they had a Muslim Brotherhood-led government, which had been democratically elected and which performed miserably when it was in office. What do they want? I think they want things individually. I think the notion of Egyptians coming together and wanting a single thing that's very different, they never really came together in the square. What they wanted was the downfall of the old regime. I don't think they ever quite coalesced around what they wanted new. And I think a lot of Egyptians are disillusioned about what new might look like after they experience what they did. And Bassem Yusuf was extraordinarily critical of the Brotherhood. As you know, he just thought these guys were a joke. What I find really interesting is the correlation between the John Stewarts and Stephen Colbert's here and the Bassem Yusuf's in Egypt. Because there was, at least amongst people I know that are a bit more media savvy than me in the United States, that John Stewart and Stephen Colbert came of age during the Bush administration in much the same way as Bassem Yusuf, sort of poking fun at politicians and gaining quite a bit of notoriety by doing so. But a lot of people believe that it was a easy vent for frustration for those who disagreed with Bush policies or Trump policies. They could watch those shows at the end of the day, have a laugh, go to sleep. It wasn't particularly an avenue, a constructive avenue, as John is saying, or as Bassem Yusuf said, for political change. And I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of what the limitations of just that satire alone does. And what's interesting to me is that the Syrian government completely understands that. And Hafez al-Assad certainly understood it and was one of the protectors of many of these comedians and artists that showed a bit of dissent, but as we've said, not so much. And so I think that there's something that we also need to untangle here in the U.S. and other places, that this kind of accountability framework through comedy is great. We can have a laugh about it. But is it really something that will construct a reformed movement for change, coalesce around something new? No, I think that there are hard limitations to that. You know, and the other piece, just to pick up on what Natasha said, I think authoritarian leaders in the past have in some ways tried to be populists with the people against the bureaucracy. Right. I mean, there's a very famous film in Egypt in the early 90s called El Irhebu Kebab, Terrorism and Kebab, about somebody who is trying to get his son moved from one school to another. And they thought he had taken over a government building and was a terrorist. And the whole point was about we're with the people. It's not the president who's wrong. It's the government which is separate from the president, and you're allowed to criticize the government as long as you don't criticize the president. I think there was a moment during the Arab Spring when people said, oh, the president's the problem. And I think we're now in a space where maybe the current presidents want to go back to that space. We will be your allies against the government, but you cannot be against me. 
Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.